You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. How about we pray as we get into God's Word. Father God, we thank you that as uh, our Father, you've given us your Word so that we can know uh, what you want us to believe and understand and how to live. Uh, Lord, we get to really see that in a profound way today with the Ten Commandments. And so we ask that you will uh, open our hearts to receive this and that you'll change our lives as we study it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have three sons, Finn, Jude and Tate. And, and one of the curses of being a pastor's child is that sometimes you end up as an illustration in a sermon. And that's going to happen today. Uh, <laughs> 
today I want to think about rules, about the Ten Commandments and how we think about rules, how we respond to them. And my kids are a classic example of the various different responses you might have. So Finn is our oldest child and he loves rules. In fact, he's actually said that, Mummy, I love rules. Very compliant, very obedient, very kind and good child. Uh, then we have Tate, who's our youngest child, and uh, he loves rules too, but for a different reason. He likes to make the rules, to write the rules. He's a lawyer. Uh, and essentially, so because he's smaller than his brothers, he knows that in any game that they play, if he can write the rules, he has a chance of winning. So he writes the rules constantly. And then we have Jude, who's our middle child. He takes a different approach to rules. Often he's obedient, but there is no sense that there is a spirit to the rule. He'll obey the letter of the law, but nothing more. And <laughs> a classic example of how this all works is uh, a few months ago, Finn came home from school quite hungry, and his mother said, well, why are you hungry? And poor Finn said, well, my lunchbox is on the other side of the playground, and you're not allowed to go across to the playground in the sun unless you're wearing a hat. And so he didn't do it. Very kind, good boy, obeys the rules. Of course, Jude pipes up and says, oh, no, no, don't have to worry about that. I just wait until the teachers turn their back and then I go. <laughs> yes, right, Jude, well done. <laughs> but, uh, the way that we approach rules says a lot about who we are. And perhaps you're a rule keeper. Perhaps you're a rule maker. Perhaps you're just a rule breaker. Whatever it is, we all approach these rules in different ways. And when we hear about God's rules, we'll approach them with that kind of attitude. Some of us will be desperate to try and keep them. Some of us will try to write our own rules instead. And others will just try to avoid them or to just keep it to the letter and not the spirit of the rules. But today we're looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, really, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see lots of God's rules or his laws. There are 613 in all that he gave to his people as they came up out of Egypt and into the promised land. Uh, but the Ten Commandments are sort of like the, the compact version. It's like the, the mobile app version of, the ten, of God's law. There's ten rules that kind of summarise all the rest of them and they're a very handy insight into what God has to say. Uh, I actually think we'd, I'd love to spend a whole series looking at each of the Ten Commandments, but today we're just going to do an overarching thing. I want to pull out some of the key principles that emerge as we look at the Ten Commandments. I've got six of them, and the first one is this, that the Ten Commandments are rules that reveal God to his people. The context for the Ten Commandments is really important. Verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here God is establishing the context for his rules. They're given, they're from him, they're given to his people as he seeks to train them and to show them who he is. You see, they're not just abstract rules. They're not just moral principles that kind of feel right or something like that. No, they're rules from a personal God given to his people that he prizes and cherishes. And he's trying to show them who he is and how to live. See, remember, uh, you might not know this, but the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for several hundred years. And so they didn't really know a lot about this God. They knew lots about the Egyptian gods, no doubt, but they didn't know much about the God who had saved them. And over the, the past few weeks, we've seen him try to show his power and his goodness and his character to them. And today he gives them his law because it articulates who he is, 
and what he is like. So Kevin DeYoung, the writer, says, the commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. They say something about his honour, his worth and his majesty. So, for instance, if we look at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, we start to see that God is unique. As I said before, uh, the Israelites came from Egypt where there were lots and lots of different gods. But God says, I'm different to all of those things. And we might actually think, why does he say no other gods before me? Because it kind of implies that there are other gods. Uh, And as Christians, we kind of grow up hearing that there's only one true God And so we might think, oh, oh, all those other gods are just the figment of someone's imagination. It's probably a little bit more complex than that. Those other gods, I think, are are genuine beings, spiritual beings, but they're probably more like demons who are trying to draw people away from worshipping the true God. And God says here, I am the only true God. I am unique. I am different. I'm the only one worthy of worship. And then in the second commandment, he shows them how to worship him. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You see, all the other gods of the other nations, uh, people would often make idols out of them, physical representations. They kind of put them up in their house and they'd bow down to them, uh, imagining that that was the God that they were serving. And now... God, the true God, says, no, 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 I'm the only one that can be worshipped. So don't worship these other things. But he's also saying, don't make a physical representation of me either. Now, why is that? Well, it's because as soon as we make a physical representation of God, we're kind of binding him to that. We're constricting him to that. And he blows that out. He's bigger than anything that we can imagine. So Andrew Reid writes, It's not long before you capture and domesticate the reality in an image. But God is the free and sovereign Lord who cannot be tamed. So he's telling his people, don't don't imagine that this is me. I'm too big for that. He's trying to show them who he is. And we also see this in the fourth commandment. In the fourth commandment, he says, right, one day a week, I want you to rest. I want you to stop. I want you to stop working. And I want everyone to gather and worship. And what's more remarkable is he says, I want everyone in your household, even the animals out in the fields, I want them to stop and rest as well. Now, why is this significant? Well, just remember, these people had been slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh wasn't giving them a rest. And in fact, all of the other gods of this time, uh, whenever they made kind of treaties with their people or, or you had a, a pressing power over another nation, they would lay out all the rules and say, here's what you must do for us. But here, God is showing them that he loves them, that he cares for them. He wants them to rest. Just imagine the kind of relief this would be for them as they hear this. So, and you can really see this throughout all the Ten Commandments. God is showing his people these rules reveal who he is to his people. And he's showing this because there's a second thing that they do. God's rules reveal God through his people. So God reveals himself to his people and then through his people as they keep those commandments. See, last week we saw that God's people were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does a priest do? They kind of uh, represent God to other people. They're kind of the go-betweens. 
Now God's people are called to be like that for the whole world. They know God, the true God, and now they've been called to go out and show the rest of the world what this God is like. And they do that by keeping these commandments. That's actually the thrust behind the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, uh, many of us will have heard this before and, and grown up imagining that it's about blasphemy, that we mustn't use God's name inappropriately. Uh, certainly there's some truth to that. That phrase in vain means to, to use something without good reason or flippantly or inappropriately, so we shouldn't do that. And, and the Jews were actually very vigilant about this. They wouldn't even write the name Jehovah, God's name, they wouldn't even write that in full because they didn't want to use God's name uh, inappropriately. But there's actually more to it than that. You see, to take, to take God's name means to bear or to carry. And so this is about how God's people carry his name. He's chosen them to be his people so the other nations will associate them with him. And when they see the Israelites, they'll think of God. That's why it's so important that they do this the right way. See, as they follow God, they'll show God to the world around them. And so, uh, in fact, in Deuteronomy 4, God says, I want people to, to hear your laws. And then when they see that, they'll realise that this is a great nation with a wise and understanding people. But there's also a risk here. They're carrying the name of God everywhere they go. And so if they fail to live up, to God's character, then they'll dishonour that God. They'll defame him. That's the same for us as well. As God's people, we carry the name Christians, Christ's people. And so it's imperative that we live like Christ, that we show people what God is like. And sometimes, of course, we don't do that. That's why with all of these commandments, it's, it shows who we are, and it shows what God is like as well. That's why it's a problem for Christians if they uh, break their marriage vows and commit adultery, uh, the seventh commandment. You see, God is a God of covenant, a God who makes promises and keeps them. And so when God's people fail to keep those promises, they point back to God and people think, oh, well, maybe God doesn't keep his promises either. Or when Christians steal or they're covetous or they're greedy, it suggests that God doesn't give them enough that God is somehow stingy. That's why they have to look for other things to satisfy them. So it's imperative that God's people keep the commandments so that they show God, they reveal God's goodness to the world around them. The Ten Commandments reveal God to his people and then they reveal God through his people. And as they do that, they show God's design for the world. That's the third thing. The Ten Commandments are God's rules that show his design for his world. It's often said that morality is personal. That's what we kind of imagine in our culture. Each to their own, whatever works for you, as long as everyone's consenting, it's all fine. But the Ten Commandments show that up. They show us that whatever the individual does impacts others. It impacts the rest of society. Your morality is my morality. It's our morality together. And so you see this in the blessings and the curses associated with these commandments. 
So in the third commandment, he says, you shall not bow down to these carved images or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's saying a parent's sin can affect their children for generations to come. One person's morality shapes those who follow And and we know this instinctively, don't we? If someone grows up in a family where there's lots of anger or violence, it's likely that they uh, may grow up to be anxious or uncertain. They lack confidence or perhaps they, they don't know how to make the best choices. It can be more subtle too. Uh, perhaps a parent is really strict and, and almost oppressive and another parent is too lenient. I've had people come to me and say, oh, I grew up in this. I've seen people who grew up in very strict families. As soon as they came out from those families, they just went wild. Then I've seen other people who said, oh, I wish my parents had been stricter with me because I lack the boundaries that I needed to shape my life. And so you can see the decisions of one generation flow on to shape the next. Thankfully, it can work the other way too, uh, as we're seeing today. We've had people come and dedicate their children. They're saying, we want this child to know Jesus, to understand who God is. We want to train them up. So you see this generation, they are Christian, they want their child to be Christian. And this can flow on in positive ways. But it's not just generational. It's right across the society. So in the fifth commandment, in verse 12, honour your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this could be applied to individuals, but it's probably uh, more accurately describing the general principle. If people honour their parents as as a whole, as a society, then things will go well for that society. And that makes sense too, doesn't it? I mean, families really are the foundation stone on which a society is built. This is where people find values and understand responsibility and and grow up to learn how to respect other authorities. And so if the family breaks down, if someone refuses to honour their parents, then they'll probably refuse to honour the other authorities in the society around them. Now, I know this sounds like some crotchety old man on TV. Oh, they're kids these days. But it turns out that that crotchety old man is correct. In Romans 1, uh, Paul is describing a society that's lost its way and he, he, rolls, he rattles off all of these symptoms of that. And one of them is that they are disobedient to parents. When that happens, things right across the society fall apart. And really, you can see this throughout the Ten Commandments. They're all setting up values that shape a society. So the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, protects life and ensures proper justice. We're saying that God gave life to all people and so we can't just take it away from them. Or the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, protects the right of ownership and property. We're saying someone has this thing and if you want to have it, then you have to ask for it or you have to buy it. We're protecting the right of ownership. That shapes the society. But in preparing this sermon, I've been thinking a lot about the relevance of the ninth commandment, which is really about truth and lies. Exodus 20 verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. Israelite justice depended on honesty, on trustworthy and reliable witnesses. 
They didn't have CCTV. They didn't have DNA evidence. And they were dealing with very significant cases. In fact, with certain crimes, there was a death penalty attached. But whenever, whenever they had that attached, they said, right, for this to be proven, there must be two to three eyewitnesses. They're saying, this is a very important decision, so we need to know that it's true. But just imagine if someone bore false witness. Just imagine if someone said, oh, yes, I saw this person kill that one and this other guy, and so he deserves to die. And a number of people said that, and someone died unjustly. You can see how false witness would destroy the society, the culture. I think it's true in our world as well. Uh, some of you have probably seen deep fake technology. Uh, basically, it's computer-generated images of people who are real, uh, but, but the images are made up, and you would swear, when you look at it, it looks so real. Uh, I just find that chilling. Like, what happens in the next five or ten years? Are we going to have people who are uh, sentenced because of video evidence that's fake? Like, how scary is that? How long until we asking, we're asking, are the images that we see on the TV, are they real? Are they reliable? Truth is a foundation for our society. But I think it's not just in legal cases. I think it's broader than that. Uh, we are in an age where truth is at, uh, under fire, an age of alternative facts, of fake news and conspiracy theories, of what one writer calls truth decay and you can't go to a dentist to fix it. We are at danger. Just think about what we do with, with language and science. I remember back in the 90s, my brother was at university and telling me all about postmodernism. He was doing an arts degree. And postmodernism basically is this idea that things are subjective, that you can have a, a text and different people will read this text in different ways and, and they decide what the text means. To take an extreme example, you could say, oh, I'm wearing a shirt, and you say, well, I don't believe that's a shirt. I call it something else. Um, now, that's an extreme example. But the idea is that language defines everything, that we can choose how we define stuff by the words that we use. Now, this is very dangerous, as we can see around us. Uh, this week, a social media influencer called Ollie London, London came out as Korean. He's English. He's Caucasian, he grew up in England, he has an English accent, but he now identifies as Korean. In a video announcing this, he talks about the racial transition surgery he's undergone and says, I know a lot of people don't understand me, but I do identify as Korean. I do look Korean now, he actually doesn't, and I do feel Korean. I don't identify as British, I identify as Korean. That's just my culture, that's my home country. Now... It's not true. It's not actual. Someone can't just change their country like that. Can't just change their identity, their culture, their birth nation. They can't change that. But he's living his truth. He's defining for himself what he is. And the same logic is used elsewhere, isn't it? A lot of people wonder why Christians care so much about the transgender debate. Why can't we just be just get over it? Why, you know, there's, there's an instinct within us, perhaps, where we feel like these people say that they're trapped in their bodies, they feel like they're not at home with who they are, 
And, and it's easy for us to think, well, we just should be really generous to these people and honour them the, way that, the best way that we can, give them the pronouns that they'd like us to use and so on. And gender dysphoria is something that is actually real for a very small percentage of people. But is it right for us to just say that this person is now a different gender? Is that healthy? I don't think it is because we're denying truth. You can't change those things. You can't change your chromosomes. And it actually damages that person because it can expose them to the kind of surgery or whatever that is irreversible and very damaging. And more than that, we're saying for our whole society that true things, that real science isn't true, that we can't rely on that. We're breaking down, we're decaying the place of truth in our society. Now, obviously, that is an extremely controversial issue. And I want you to hear here that I'm not just uh, trying to destroy people who might experience gender dysphoria. I've known people who uh, have grappled with this with their children. But what I'm saying is the truth is one of the foundations for our society and whenever we start to break that down, other things follow. We need to believe what we see around us. We need to be able to build our lives on something reliable. And that's what God's law is pointing through all of the rules. It's showing us that God has set the pattern. Do you know the, the Ten Commandments come from what we call the Torah. It's part of the Old Testament. And that word Torah means something like pointing. It's pointing the way. It's about offering instruction and direction and guidance. And that's what God's law does. It shows us who God is and how he wants us to live, how he's designed us to live. He's our creator. We're made by him. And so when he gives us the law, he's showing us how to live. This is the maker's manual. He's guiding us and directing us. And I love Psalm 19. Uh, the writer says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. It's saying God's rules show us how to live, the best way to live, a path that will give us blessing and joy. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. But the problem is, I don't know if you've ever tried this, if you actually really try to keep these commandments, you'll see that you fall short, that these are rules we can't keep. I mean, let's just think about it. Has there ever been a time where you've put something before God or worshipped something instead of God? Timothy Keller, in his book Counterfeit Gods, defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Have you ever done that? Then you've broken the first commandment. Have you ever worshipped a God of your own creation? might not have been a physical representation, but in your mind you've created, oh, this is what I think God is like. 
Tim Chester writes that this is to reduce God to something of our own making, not to replace him, but to make him manageable, to understand him according to our notions rather than according to his revelation in the Bible. Have you ever judged God or reduced him? Then you've broken the second commandment. Have you dishonoured God's name? Have you used it flippantly? Or has there ever been a time in your life where you've fallen short of what a Christian should be like? As one writer puts it, have you ever damaged God's reputation? Then you've broken the third commandment. You haven't carried God's name the way we're supposed to. Do you find yourself working more than you should? You can't even imagine resting one day a week and you resent God demanding that you make time for him in some way. Then you've broken the fourth commandment. Have you ever failed to honour your parents and the authorities in your life? Have you been rebellious and defiant in your thoughts or your words or your actions? Then you've broken the fifth commandment. Have you ever hated someone, just wanted them out of your life, wished they didn't exist or, or tried to destroy them with your words? Then you've broken the sixth commandment. Have you ever lusted after someone else, allowed your eyes or your mind to wander? Have you ever flirted with someone that you weren't married to? Perhaps you've got someone else that you're committed to at home, but you're seeking that cheap thrill of admiration. Then you've broken the seventh commandment. Have you taken something that doesn't belong to you? You haven't paid for it, even though you should have. Then you've broken the eighth commandment. Have you failed to tell the truth? Have you said something false or bent the truth a little bit, either to protect yourself or to hurt someone else? Then you've broken the ninth commandment. Have you coveted? Have you seen something that someone else had and wanted that in an unhealthy way? Have you wanted their marriage, their friends, their kids, their car, their job, their video games, whatever it is, then you've broken the 10th commandment. It's confronting, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I think I've done all of those things. I have not kept the 10 commandments. And that's what God's people have come to understand. So the Apostle Paul uh, speaks about this in his letter to the church at Rome. He was an impressive guy, Paul, dedicated, disciplined. He was a Pharisee, a select group of people amongst the Jews who dedicated their whole lives to studying and learning and obeying God's law. So he was a pious guy. But at one point, as he studied it, he realised that he just wasn't keeping it. Romans 7, I was once alive apart from the law. I thought that I was righteous. I thought that I could impress God by my law-keeping. But when the commandment came, when I really studied it deeper, sin came alive and I died. I realised that I fell short and so I couldn't stand before God. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. It made me aware of how I fell short. It exposed me. But that's actually the purpose of it. Elsewhere he writes, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, see, we often approach God's laws or commandments as a recipe for salvation. We think, okay, here's God's rules. I'll try and keep them. And if I can, God will accept me. But the more we study them, the more we understand them, 
we start to see that we fall short. It exposes our hearts. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We can't make ourselves acceptable to God. So what do we do? I mean, God demands obedience here. In Deuteronomy, he says to his people, uh, curse be anyone who does not confirm the, war- the words of this law by doing them. That's God's command. That's his expectation, his requirement. If you want to be with me, then you need to keep these laws. But I can't keep them. So what do I do? Well, thankfully, someone has kept them for us. Because here's the next thing. These are rules that Jesus kept. See, the Ten Commandments expose what we are, but they also point to our Saviour. Jesus has kept the rules, the law. He did keep the Ten Commandments, and he did it on our behalf. He kept the first commandment. Just think of when the devil tempted him, offering him the world if he would just worship him. What did Jesus say? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He kept the second commandment. He didn't make up a God that he would serve. He didn't define God for himself. He didn't say, oh, maybe God would like this for me. He says, no, no, no. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's facing death, he says, not my will, but yours be done. He kept the third commandment. He carried the name of God and he did it perfectly. John 1, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He carried God's name everywhere perfectly. He kept the fourth commandment. He rested on the Sabbath day just as he had in the week of creation when he made the world. He kept the fifth commandment. We're told in Luke 2 that he, the eternal son of God, was submissive to his human parents And then at the cross, as he's just about to die, what does he do? He thinks about his mum. He honours his mother. He kept the sixth commandment. Instead of taking life, he gave it, even his own life. He kept the seventh commandment. It's telling that so many women felt comfortable around Jesus, felt honoured and respected. Dorothy Sayers writes, Perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. He kept the eighth commandment. Always he gave, never did he take. He kept the ninth commandment. Not once did he lie, even when lying would have protected him in his court trial. John 7 In him there was no falsehood. And he kept the 10th commandment. Tim Chester writes, He had a right to more riches, influence and praise than any other human. Yet instead, he freely, joyfully chose to become poor for our good and his Father's glory. Jesus kept God's commandments. He was perfect. He was righteous. And he did that for us. He kept God's law on our behalf. You see, what Jesus has done is now put on our account. So God looks at us and sees what Jesus has done. He sees us and then views us as if we had lived a perfect life, as if we had kept God's law perfectly. And then there's something else that God does. The sin that's on our account is placed on Jesus. He carries that debt and he deals with it. He takes the punishment, the justice that we deserve. 
And so together, because of these two things, we can be accepted by God. God looks at us, doesn't see our sin, and only sees what Jesus has done. That's how the Bible talks about it. And now he invites us to receive it because all we need to do to receive this is to repent and to believe, to trust. To repent means to turn, to acknowledge that we haven't kept God's laws, that we haven't done all that we should have done, that we've walked our own way. And when we went through that Ten Commandments, we, we just acknowledge that we haven't kept them. We acknowledge that and then we say, okay, Jesus, I trust what you have done. And then we decide, we resolve to live with him, to follow him, not to earn our salvation, but because we've seen the goodness of God and we want to experience more of it. And that leads us to the last point, that these are rules for love. You may have heard of a book called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. It was written about 30 years ago and it's since become a kind of cottage industry. Every year there's a new book coming out, The Five Love Languages for children, for teenagers, for families, for your cat, whatever it is. And basically the premise is that if you can work out how your, the people in your life and your cat, how they receive love, then you'll be able to give that love. So for some people it's words of affirmation. For other people, it's physical touch or quality time. And for some people, it's gift giving or acts of service, five love languages. I asked my wife about this once. She said she had all five, which is just unfair. <laughs> but the idea is that if you learn how to do this, you'll be loving that person in the way that they need. Ten commandments are the same. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the Ten Commandments are kind of a manual for how to love. If you want to love God, if you want to walk with him, then just follow the Ten Commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But I want you to understand, never forget the order of things. We don't keep these commandments so that we can be saved. We keep them because we have been saved. And I want you to notice something. Where do we get the Ten Commandments? It's in the middle of Exodus after God's people have already been rescued. You see, it could have been, back in Exodus 2, we saw that God's people were crying out to God for rescue. Please help us, save us. And so God could have said, all right, okay, if you want to be saved, here's the Ten Commandments. Keep these perfectly and then I'll save you. But they wouldn't have been able to, would they? As we've seen, we can't keep these commandments. No, no, God's so kind to his people, that he saves them, he rescues them, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. So we're not saved by what we do. We're saved so that we can do, so that we can follow. And God's commandments show us how to love him. They reveal who he is and what a good God he is. And they show us how to reveal him to the world. They show us his wisdom for all of society. And while there are rules that we can't keep, Jesus has kept them. And so in love we respond by shaping our life and shaping our world by his laws. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that you are the God of the Ten Commandments. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us like this, that in the Ten Commandments we see what you're like. We see your greatness. We see your goodness. We see your wisdom, your desire and your love for all people in this world to experience 
your wisdom. Lord, uh, we acknowledge that we fall short of this. We don't keep them. So we thank you that Jesus kept them for us. We ask, Lord, that we will repent, that we'll acknowledge where we've fallen short and then trust what Jesus has done. And then because we love you, help us to keep them so that the world can see how good you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.